Podcast. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Blit, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. And the truth shall set you free. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. We offer you the bond of family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with Wes. Wesley. Wesley. And we are talking today, Netflix original film from 2020, Extraction. Yeah, this is kind of a new movie, huh? In a new era of cinema. I mean, they've had Netflix original movies before, but this was kind of an exciting new release in a time that we can't go to the theaters. Yeah, Extraction was very cinematic, felt theatrical, and was released directly to streaming. But it was funny because I was was thinking, are you joking when you said kind of a new movie or kind of a new thing? Because Extraction, the actual verb of extracting somebody from a compromising situation, is certainly not a new concept. Yep. Ransom, Taken, the Taken franchise this idea of like someone being kidnapped and someone needing to be rescued. Yeah, not a new concept. Not a new concept, but I think from a directorial perspective, a decidedly different take. So this guy, Sam Hargrave, the director, first time director, pretty noteworthy, uh, but he was, you know, he's been in the stunt business for a long time. He was a stunt double for Captain America. He was part of the Marvel Universe, and then he became the sort of go-to action scenes coordinator. So he just kind of slipped into the chair, but he was right there in the fray for a lot of the stuff. It is pretty much an across-the-board action movie. I, I don't. I wouldn't guess that you felt there was a lot of nuance. Oh, it's, yeah, it's action through and through, and really fun action at that. But uh, last year, maybe it was a year or two ago, Triple Frontier was another big Netflix action-based uh, movie with Charlie Hunnam and Ben Affleck. And, you know, I watched that for what it was worth and enjoyed it. Um, Extraction may linger a little bit longer in my mind because there were a lot of good things about it, but it was a pretty straightforward action-adventure movie. Um, my my title for this movie would have been Relief because this is sort of the reemergence of Chris Hemsworth in a non-Marvel context. He's been Thor for a good long time, but his non-Marvel-related movies... Ghostbusters, the remake, and Men in Black International, particularly him in a comedy role, hasn't worked for me at all. So Extraction, I think, is his sort of sweet spot. Uh, and He's definitely an imposing, capable action star. Yeah, his figure, especially against the Bangladeshi backdrop, yeah. with all the Bangladeshi men and women, like he is a hulking, imposing, huge white dude. Yeah, he's why James Bond wouldn't go to uh, to India or Bangladesh or any of those countries where it's impossible for a big white dude to blend in. <laughs> right. Especially in the scene where he's going to negotiate and the kidnappers are kind of toying with him. Uh-huh. And when they cut to a profile two shot 
of the main kidnapper and him, he's a clear two feet taller than him. Yeah, he's a big Norse Norse god, right? I mean, he's Thor <laughs> for a reason. Uh, a lot of the sort of kinetic action scenes are akin to the Bourne movies with Matt Damon, um, who is definitely a physically capable person, but doesn't really have the sort of imposing hero quality that I think that Chris Hemsworth embodies. But also not a lot of range for this Tyler Rake character. He was sort of Rob Balot face throughout. Pretty stony. And, uh, you know, we got the sort of trite glimpses of his his past and why, why he was a gopher-broke mercenary who would take any job regardless of the risk because he was still mourning the, the passing of his son. Um, you know, pretty standard fare. But uh, while he was certainly present and capable and agile and always kind of a step ahead of the people who were fighting him, um, you know, on the other hand, in his personal life, he couldn't be bothered with things like safety and jumping off that giant cliff or even being sober a lot of the time, as his buddy mentioned he needed to be. I guess he just when he when it's time to work, he gets up, shows up and gets the job done and really has no fear. He kind of was a mercenary with a death wish. Yeah, he did what he had to to survive, but his actual the quality of his survival wasn't paramount. It's been around for a long time, this sort of trope. I think most notably, I remember this sort of archetype from what became a different character in Lethal Weapon. Mel Gibson's original character of Riggs was portrayed as kind of crazy with nothing to live for because of uh, tragedy in his family. And then that sort of evolved into a funnier kind of character. I kind of compared him to a more depressed example in Casey Affleck's character in Manchester by the Sea. How he's just this kind of dude who there's really no hope that he's going to change, but he could do something good before he goes out. But this movie definitely had better fight scenes than Manchester by the Sea. And, uh, (laughs) Death was in his face in his life, and if it claimed him next, that would just be all the sooner he could visit with his son. Um, So he kind of walked into a hail of bullets and was assured and confident that he could get the job done. But the job wasn't his self-preservation, obviously. It was getting Ovi out of there and back to his dad. And even the motivation, aside from the money, his sort of mercenary aesthetic, wasn't getting good kid back to equally bad dad, right? The bad dad was just as bad as the other gangster dad, and nobody made that any secret, including his own son. It was getting the job done for the money because he knew he could do it, and there was no fear holding him back. And then he realized somewhere along the way that that was less important than getting the job done. Right. And that was, and that happened before he came, he met up with the sheriff from Stranger Things. When he went to Hop's house? When he went to Hop's house, and then they had a big brawl. This movie also mirrored too closely to ignore because, you know, obviously for the one take action scenes that we saw in 1917 and Children of Men, it kind of takes on a video game feel. We said the same thing about 1917. In particular, this movie really took on the video game feel of The Last of Us, the post-apocalyptic zombie or infected video game with an older kind of grizzled soldierly type ferrying this helpless younger person across this dangerous landscape to get from point A to point B. Where is The Last of Us set? I think it's Ohio. Oh, But no, it's a different thing. It was the older person transporting a very important younger person. Uh, Along the way, they met supposed friends who were eventually revealed that they couldn't be trusted. Uh, the, The kid, Ovi, ultimately had to take matters into his own hands. 
when Rake trusts the wrong person in Hopper. Oh, right. In David, in David Harbor, um, the direct association can't be made, but it can definitely, it was definitely inferred. Well, I saw in the credits that this was based on a graphic novel. Okay. I hadn't heard that. It's been around from what I understand. Um, one source said that this originally had Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis attached. So that must have been a while ago. Wow. You mean it's been around for like 30 years? Well, I guess. But the, uh, I also hadn't heard of the graphic novel. And it also, it would make sense to me if it was based on some kind of very simplistic source material because it's visually and action driven and not necessarily a deep kind of story. I kind of felt like when the action took a back seat in the muddle that was the middle, <laughs> this it doesn't have to pretend that it has some depth and that there's a relationship here or why he, cho- why he chose Avi to, um, to have a father-son relationship with. The action was enough. <laughs> they didn't have to pretend there was some surrogate father-son thing going on. You felt that actually having the sort of emotional connection scenes uh, was to the detriment and that it took us away from the action scenes for too long? I mean, the the action scenes were so well choreographed. And there were so many moments where I was like totally geeking out. And yeah, I just felt like that kind of stuff wasn't necessary. I mean, it was necessary for Rake and Avi to have the moment where he, Avi's tucked in at Gaspar's place and they have their moment. Maybe it was because Chris Hemsworth rejected his wife's curry and gave it to (laughs) Avi that he got all pissed off. Anyway, he brings in the curry and Avi and he have a moment. And perhaps that moment was necessary not only for the turn in Rake's character, but also for Avi to step up and defend Rake against Gaspar when Gaspar turns. Yeah, there's no way he was going to remain, the Avi character was going to remain innocent. I mean, he was in the in the midst of the gunfire. He saw countless people being killed. And so you think that it's a coming-of-age moment where he doesn't, he never realized the peril that he or his friends were in, given that their fathers were two warring factions. But uh, he sort of understands the gravity when he has to pick up a gun and shoot someone in his own self-defense. But I do feel that the scene where they met with Gaspar was, may, yeah, maybe inconsequential because... I didn't expect him to turn on them, but when he did, the twist was inconsequential to me because probably, as you said, it was just a stopping point to catch your breath between action scenes. I don't know that it's, I didn't see it coming necessarily, but I, I, no, I think I did. I half expected it. There was something off about the Gaspar character. I just didn't care to be watching out for it. Okay. So you, you kind of just like wrote it off as a stopover and... It was what it was, but there were a couple of things that tipped me off that Gaspar wasn't the savior that Rake needed. One, there was just something kind of off about him. Two, you kind of knew that Rake wasn't going to get a break. And then three, we start the movie, which is a device we should talk about. Right. We start the film on the bridge, and then we cut to two days earlier. And by the time we get to Gaspar's house, we're already a day, a day plus in, and Gaspar says, we're going to wait it out a couple of days. So you know that something is going to trigger the action to start again because they can't hang around at Gaspar's for that long. Man, look at you paying close attention. I didn't care. I didn't I know. track the timeline. But definitely <laughs> the device of starting the movie on the bridge, knowing that he's alone with Avi nowhere in sight, let alone Hopper from Stranger Things, was a pretty clear indication that something was going to go awry. So I wasn't bracing, neither was I bracing for it nor expecting it. 
you were kind of neutral about the turn that the scene took, but I bet you weren't expecting that pretty dynamic fight scene between the two of them. I mean, Hopper kind of had the upper hand and kind of kicked his ass. Yeah, put him on his back. And and, and actually, to see Rake go up against, you know, any number of guys with knives and guns in, in uh, close quarters and, and dispatch them all efficiently, and then to have Hopper put him down really bad, and where he might have won, he was, you know, going to stab him, presumably, despite the fact that he was saying, come with me or, or join with me in giving this kid up for the $10 million, it looked like he was going to kill him until Avi stepped in with the gun. Yeah. So yeah, a, t- a testament to the danger of that character, which we didn't see uh, until it, it actually might have been more effective if David Harbour had stepped in somewhere or if had joined them in the middle of the fight and had really thrown down so we could see how potentially dangerous he was so that when he turned, we had a chance to see what real danger Rake and Avi were in. Hmm. Yeah. But the device on the bridge has been used before, certainly. It gives us the indicator that we will eventually reach that spot. And yeah, to your point, everything may be for naught up until that point, or nothing can be trusted. Because no matter what, he's not going to get the kid to safety before being really shot and really bloody at the end. Well, one or two shots on the bridge, but he sure took a lot of fire before that. The Goonies from Hell being the start. (laughs) Yeah, the uh, so those kids. I called them. I called him Rufio, and the Lost Boys, <laughs> and 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 Hopper and Thor, and but uh, yeah, those kids are also not new. The sort of up and comer who is defiant and and catches the eye of the big bad boss. Uh, that was used extensively in Desperado, which is also about the professional ferrying the innocent across this city hellscape of gunfire and knives. And so I didn't, I wasn't sure if Rufio was going to die or not, but I I definitely saw his arc uh, playing out the way that it did. It was a little silly that Rufio got the last shot. Yeah, but there were, it was sort of an amalgamation of a lot of different action movies with nothing real thrown in, in an age of carefully choreographed old boy born movies, sort of hyperkinetic action scenes, and especially in the sort of stitched together way, we got the main chase sequence and the main attempted extraction sequence that was 11 minutes and 30 seconds, supposed to be one shot, although I personally felt like the stitches were much more obvious. While it was neato, you could definitely tell that it wasn't a single shot, right? Oh yeah, they didn't cover it up perhaps as cleanly and as expertly as they did in 1917, which, you know, was a device they had to sustain for an hour and a half plus. Yeah, but I came to terms with the idea that this wasn't stitched together as effectively uh, to resemble a single shot where we're wondering, how did they do that? We pretty much know by now, but it definitely gave us an on the ground right next to Tyler Rake feel of immediacy when uh, things are happening conceivably in real time. You know, it definitely adds a level to the action, but it doesn't have to be a marvel that we've never seen before. I think audiences are more savvy to that. So it was just kind of about how cool it was. And given that this movie was directed by a stunt person and a uh, stunt camera operator and a choreographer, there was a lot of skill involved. Um, One of the more noticeable shots in that long sequence was a crane shot on a car following the car with the actor that then transitioned into a running shot and then into the car. So the director was strapped into the car as it was following Chris Hemsworth's car. And then when the cars stopped, he unclipped himself, slid off the hood, ran up with the camera and shoved the camera into the window. 
And what looked like a stitched effect shot ended up being entirely practical because that dude is crazy. (laughs) They did some awesome picture car stunt work. That one, but also when both Rake and Sanju get hit really badly by cars. And then when Rake comes flying out the back window when he's getting attacked by the Goonies from hell. Like, all of those car stunts were amazing. Yeah, that's some circus stunt precision. So in the sequence where both Sanju and Rake get hit by cars, there's also this really great drive-by of two people on a scooter (laughs) who could care less about the knife fight in the middle of the street and just come beep-beep right through. So while that was expertly choreographed, it did make me roll my eyes. Like, I get that that people in... (laughs) in Dhaka and Bangladesh don't care where you are in the street. Traffic patterns are different. They're going to roll right at you and you have to assume they're not going to hit you, but it takes it to a next level when you roll through the knife fight, right? Like, cause you can't be bothered to <laughs> swerve around. It was kind of funny. And I think it was the kind of tongue in cheek humor that worked in this, the cutesy stuff between him and Avi, not as much, but that stuff was fun. Right. And, and so I think that's the point. This is a fun movie that works well in, in its action scenes when it's in a high gear and you, it can't be taken too seriously. Right. Right. And I do say fun with a grain of salt. Now, again, you know, my sensibility has been molded and shaped by you, my older brother. But it's also very, very violent. Like, it's fun, but it's super bloody and violent, and people get stabbed in the neck and in the face and shot in the neck, and it's bad. Yeah, not stabbed in the neck quite as many times as in some other movies. But yeah, definitely bloody, but not gory, if that makes sense. There was a lot of blood splatter and shooting, but it's not staged in such a way that we linger on any particular death. Yeah, there's no sadistic kind of crimes. Right. They're all unnamed henchmen going down one at a time, and we're look, we're marveling at the clever way Rake can navigate a city with which he's not familiar, and bad guys who are just as armed uh, as him, and he he mows them down. Yeah, he does with Avi in tow. With Avi in tow, he yeah, she tells him to ditch the boy, but he's like already attached to him. Yeah, but that's not saying that Avi didn't try to take the opportunity to go off on his own. I mean, while Tyler Rake is fighting off the guys in the hallway that are trying to kill him, he runs off unprotected. And I'm yelling, where are you going, kid? Stop. Your oh only my God, chance. That was my favorite. You're, are you talking about when he breaks away and the camera follows him? Yes. Your only chance is to stay with that dude who's killed dozens of people in your interest. I mean, Rake was down, and if he hadn't have gotten away, they would have smothered him. They would have they would have tied him down. He would he had to make a run for it, and it turned out to be the best surprise of that whole sequence. When Avi's throwing stuff at him, like bamboo sticks and food or whatever, and then he rounds the corner, and Tyler is right there. <laughs> that was really good. That was super fun. It's weird to like laugh and be all like giddy in a really brutal, bloody action sequence. Which did make me think about Old Boy, too. Welcome to Dudedom. <laughs> Have I finally arrived? Will you let me in the door? Yep. I mean, I don't man the door. I'm here in the corner hoping no one will, will notice me. <laughs> it was a really fun movie, especially to watch in the middle of the night because I couldn't sleep. Uh, I'm sure it didn't help you sleep. No, I was all jazzed afterward. But that said, um, because we are sort of focused on on the likability of Chris Hemsworth's character, even though he didn't do a lot of stuff that we liked, uh, he's just sort of cool and tough. 
I, if you know, for the purposes of this review, I tried to get a hold on the gangsters, on the father and the piano playing, and and the other guy who was ruthless and and yet willing to take on proteges. And maybe it doesn't matter. When I look at arch bad guy characters, like the Amir Asif character, I think it's the uh, I'm going to call it the um, the wizards effect. So there was this magician that I interviewed for my history of magic senior class report who worked at Wizards in Universal City. Yep. Oh, yeah, you remember him. Remember you came to his pla- his apartment with me? Vaguely. And I remember he, like, answered the door, and he was wearing a T-shirt and jeans. And I was like, oh, that's weird, because <laughs> I had only ever seen him in a tuxedo. He goes to sleep in his top and tails. <laughs> and I don't know why I thought the wizard at Universal City Walk would be, would be living some kind of glorious lifestyle. But it just made me realize, like, what a facade, you know, there is. Yep. So anyway, the arch bad guy characters always make me think of who the actor is in real life. Like, that dude probably has a one-bedroom apartment in West Hollywood. And yet he's playing Amir Asif in the massive Bangladeshi palace as an arch crime lord drug dude. Do you ever have those kinds of moments where you cannot suspend disbelief and you think of this guy being a two-bit day-playing actor? Um, it, it mostly comes when I see a character that I so closely identify with a bad guy in an interview where he's talking or in another role where he's like like a gay guy with AIDS or something. And you're like, where? <laughs> like, what? that's the same dude? That's impossible. It's like Jeanette Goldstein who cannot possibly be anything other than a badass Marine but is like a, a suburban house mom in the next one. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so the, it just, in short, I didn't believe the Amir Asif character. Yeah, inconsequential in that way for the, uh, for the guys. Actually, I couldn't even picture the dad's face. We never saw him again once he tasked Sanju to go get his son. Sanju, is that his name? Saju. Saju is badass. And that was probably new, right? Saju's character, like for Rake and Saju's character's relationship to basically take a 180. Yeah, but I mean, certainly that character, the sort of double crosser slash double agent who eventually comes around is not a new concept. But uh, his sort of own 180 character arc didn't ring quite true for me because he was a badass with a gun who then reverted to that old character and got on the phone and talked about talked to his wife and child and had an emotional moment after he set his own broken nose. <laughs> well, these guys all have to be a little bit sociopathic. I mean... I thought it was a pretty interesting misdirect where you think he's some kind of domestic when in fact he's ex-special forces like super agent. Yeah, he was just the guy who had to do what needed to be done. Otherwise, his own family would be killed. Yeah. So not to say that it was unrealistic, just inconsequential. It didn't really matter to me who his character was any more than it mattered delving into the backstories of the two gangster, gangster parents, gangster figures. I mean, I know that they never... I liked how they revealed Saju's plan, right? He talks to his wife and she says, you got to do what you got to do. And then he says, I have an idea, but it's risky. And then you realize that he commissions Rake and his team, but never intends to pay the full amount, like intends to let them do the heavy lifting and then to use his own talents from there to finish the job to get him back. But he should have known that he was going to like the best of the best, that it would have been pretty hard for him to get Avi from him once they've done the heavy lifting of the extraction. 
Right, and he wasn't aware. I don't know how he knew of the right character or the organization or to hire him, but he also should have known that if he reneged on the payment and basically stole the package away from him, that that he wouldn't be like, well, that's it, I'm going back to Australia. I mean, he probably would have had a much harder time keeping Avi away from Tyler than he would have keeping Avi away from the other gangster guy. Oh, interesting. He would have just brought up... Yeah, yeah. what's a better motivator than revenge, if not money? <laughs> Right. He was he was after the package and, you know, and the the money that he never got. You know, if I were the go for broke, nothing to lose rake character, I definitely would have gone after Saju. Well, if you were the everything to lose go for broke Saju character, what would you have done? Uh, No, that was pretty close to what he did, although I wouldn't have expected that if this guy was top notch, that I would have double crossed that guy. Because if he were capable, he might have done so himself. Why didn't he go, go after him himself? Oh, that's true. Like, why didn't he try to perform the extraction himself, like with a small team or something? Because he's not a big enough box office draw. He's not as big a star as Chris Hemsworth. So um, so obviously Saju's betrayal and refusal to pay took the sort of money out of the equation. And thankfully, Rake came to the realization that defending the kid and getting him out was more a personal thing and not about money anymore because he wasn't going to get paid anyway. Kelly leaned over early in the, in the movie and said, so is it still a white savior situation if they hire the white guy? It was that, and then reinforced by Avi's kind of lovable innocentness, and and how that was smashed by him having to kill uh, a white guy to save the other white guy. Yeah, Avi was great. Yeah, I liked him fine. He was a punk ass kid with his punk ass friends and deserved to be taken because he was reckless. But he learned his lesson. And he had, but he had that great wide eyed, gritty teeth kind of scared look. <laughs> I, I got the scared look. I didn't get the uh, the gritty teeth look. But let's get to the inevitability of the ending. The reason that I didn't cling too much to sort of the story and the amb- the ambivalence of the gangster characters is because we knew that Bad Dad was bad. And there was no real motivation other than Avi's safety to get him back to Bad Dad. He was he was just kind of a pawn between these two gangsters. Yeah. Was he going to be any safer or better off with the dad? It's possible he wouldn't have been killed, but I didn't want him. I didn't want the mission to be accomplished successfully. So when Avi is successfully returned to his dad, we never see the dad character again. Don't know if he got out of prison. Just know that, that Avi was safe. And then he's in, in a place with a lot more white people than he was before where he's at the swimming pool and mirrors Rake's dive into the water, you know, where he hangs out for a while. Without the benefit of stones, I'm not sure how you defy buoyancy like that. So definitely the movie was about the redemption of the Rake character, right? Lost his son, uh, was doing stuff for money because he didn't care, and then found a will to care again, where actually he was willing to sacrifice himself so that Avi could live for better or worse. And then Avi comes out of the water and sees a figure in the distance. Do you think it was Rake? I thought about it. We don't see him die but I didn't think I think it's a little far-fetched to think I I don't think that it was a message of hope it felt a little ominous the way it was staged oh you took ominous from it that it might have been someone still after Avi well yeah I mean we were led to believe that there was no hope for Avi right and so I just figured that after eight months time somebody had caught up with him wherever he was in hiding or wherever he was being stashed away godfather style that they had caught up with him interesting and it was somebody who was lying in wait for him but 
the theme or maybe the metaphor or whatever that Avi sets up in his talk with Rake is it's not the fall that will kill you. It's staying submerged. Look at you paying attention. (laughs) And the fact that Avi has will to live and comes up would suggest that it was a happy ending as opposed to a a bad or ominous ending. I didn't get the ominous ending. That's a very interesting observation. He came up, it was a vaguely whitish looking dude, blondish looking hair. So I thought definitely that was intended to be the Chris Hemsworth character or uh, some representation of him. So, but straight from the horse's mouth, Hargrave, the director, he said that the ambiguity of the ending lent in his mind to two interpretations. One, that Avi was paying tribute to Rake, who had saved him, with a sort of vision, or that the idea that he was always watching over him, or Rake survived. And depending on how you feel about the Rake character, Chris Hemsworth, if you wanted him to show up again, then in your mind, then definitely he survived that fall off the bridge and the gunshot wound to the neck, and he was still watching over the kid. Or he was a tributary vision. And so I thought, that's nice, that they kind of kept it ambiguous and, and, you know, kind of open to interpretation, because in that way, the movie can be infused with a message that not everything needs to be cut and dry. It doesn't have to take all of its cues from previous action movies, and it can go in a more sort of ambiguous philosophical direction. And then they announced a sequel with both the director and Chris Hemsworth returning. (laughs) That's what I was going to say. Or you set up the sequel. Yep. Exactly. So the uh, the ambiguity, if, if the sequel came to play, because, uh, you know, some other movies like the, uh, the Last Airbender with Dev Patel definitely set up a sequel by introducing a brand new character in the last couple seconds of the movie. And then there was no sequel. So I guess you play it kind of carefully. So it could it could set up a sequel or if, in the event this movie tanks completely, it can stand alone. So Extraction 2. Well, I'm excited for the sequel. Yeah. Sure. I had, I had fun watching this movie. It wasn't gratuitously violent in a gory kind of realistic way. It was like video game violence or movie violence in a sort of kinetic, fun, interesting way that was really well and capably shot uh, and well and capably acted and choreographed. I liked Extraction. I'm not sure how, how it would bear repeated viewings or whatever, but this movie definitely clears the bar for pure entertainment. It's a movie movie and not a thought, you know, a thinking movie. So it's, uh, it's an all right movie. Well, I can tell you how it holds up to repeat viewing because I watched it two days in a row. Whoa. You like the <laughs> Thor. He's never done it for me, but he was very convincing in this character. I watched it in the middle of the night because I couldn't sleep. And Brian still hadn't come to bed, so I went upstairs to find him, and I found him watching it. Uh, Independently, or he knew that you were watching it? Independently. That's so weird. Although, as soon as I saw that he was watching it, I was like, oh yeah, he dies. (laughs) But I was willing to watch it again, because it was a good movie, and I enjoyed it for what it was. And I liked seeing a Netflix original that felt cinematic, even if it may not have been the kind of multi-dimensional movie that would have demanded a theatrical release. Yeah, and maybe this can break the barriers and be the first movie to have a sequel that goes theatrical from a Netflix original because of its success in IMAX. Where you would be sure to see it. All right, well, that was our talk on Extraction. We got a all right from Wes, a good from Iris, and we'd love to know what you think. Give us a call, 818-835-0374 or whatever, movies at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll see you next time. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's the shit? No, that's the 
Daddy. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big home touchdown. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour.